This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for September 2nd, 2012. The Gospel is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, 14 through 15, and 21 through 23. The message is by Father Ron Baird. In today's Gospel lesson, we see the Pharisees coming to Jesus, and they are concerned because they see that his disciples are eating and they have not yet washed their hands. And so they say, why in the world are your disciples eating with defiled hands? And then Mark goes on to tell us about the rituals that go on. He said, you know, that the, the Jews in those times wouldn't eat or drink anything unless they had washed their hands and washed the pots and washed the pans and done everything. And to the modern ear, that sounds a little strange because we're sitting here thinking, why would you eat with dirty hands and dirty off of dirty dishes? That doesn't make much sense. But that's not the kind of washing that that meant. It was a, a ritual kind of washing that was done in front of everybody. It was a, a uh, washing that was above and beyond that that sort of set them apart. That's why even in our liturgy, one of the things that happens is the priest um, you know, has the water poured over his fingers before, they, um, before he goes and celebrates the Eucharist called the ablutions. And uh, it's not because my hands are dirty before I get up. I mean, because if that was the case, I'd need soap too. But, um, but it's a ritual kind of thing to set it apart. These hands are going to do something different. And so when they go forward then, here they are. Um, they, they see that they don't follow those rules. Now, that wasn't really all that uncommon in, in, out in the, the hinderlands of, of, of things because people, when they were out in the fields working and had lunch, they didn't really have the ability to go and go through all the appropriate prayers and all that sort of thing every time before you ate something. And so they just did that. But do you think that they're really uptight about whether or not they ate before they did that? I think that's why they're bringing it up. I think they're very disturbed about the fact that his disciples are eating without having done the ritual washing. Hmm? Yeah, they're nitpicking. They're complaining. We've seen a lot of that in the last few weeks when we were reading from John. If you remember the I am the bread of life passages, that first it starts off that the Pharisees were complaining. And then when Jesus said he was the bread of life and you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, then the disciples started complaining. And then well, they complained so much when he asked them that. And if you remember last week, he said, does this offend you? Um, that it said many of them even left and didn't follow him anymore. All because they didn't agree or think that what he was doing was the right thing. And that's why Jesus turns to the twelve and says, well, what about you? Are you leaving too? And they said, well, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, complaining seems to be a constant theme in the lessons since I've gotten back from vacation. I don't know if that's a message to me or what. Um, but we've been seeing that in Ephesians too. Remember, he talked about people with wicked tongues and you know, all these sorts of things. And, and the only comfort that we can get out of it, because even in James today, um, we hear that anyone who does not bridle their tongue has a useless faith. You don't bridle your tongue, you have a useless, useless, that's hard to say, faith. So what is it about the church in complaining? Did all of you all join a church to... I want to join the complaint society. Which one's the best one to go and complain at? 
Matter of fact, when you were born, were you thinking, oh boy, now finally I get to start complaining? I mean, what is it about complaining? Well, part of it is it's almost become ingrained in our fallen nature. There's just a lot of complaining, isn't there? I mean, it goes on all the time. I mean, think about all the robocalls you're getting. How many of them really give you a positive message, and how many of them, you know, complain about the other candidate? And both sides do it. I mean, it's not like they, you know, one side doesn't warn the others, and, or if you didn't warn the others, that would make a whole lot of difference. I mean, everybody just gripes. You know, Democrats gripe about Republicans. Republicans gripe about Democrats. They get together, they probably gripe about independents. I mean, <laughs> but there's always complaining going on. And you have to wonder, so what is the complaining all about? Why is it that there's so much complaining? And why is it in particular that we have two entirely different authors who come from very different kinds of perspectives between James and Paul, both of whom are writing to a specific church about complaining? Could that tell us something about church? Maybe there's a lot of complaining that goes on. Father Keith Gentry, who was my associate up until 2003, when he left, gave me a, a little plaque it's behind my desk. It says, uh, the deadline for all complaints was yesterday. I need to write him and tell him that didn't work. <laughs> so why is there so much complaining? Why is there all the complaining? I mean, people complain at work, they complain at school, you know, they, they complain at home. I, well, you all compl have complaining at home? I don't want to go to bed. I mean, <laughs> I mean, even our pets complain, don't they? I mean, it's just chronic. What is the benefit from it? Why do we do that? Now, I know none of you all actually complain ever. But what is the benefit? So you're only speaking from the other side, I realize that. Why, why do people complain? Hmm? Not good enough? Not getting what they want? Not happy with themselves? What? Have something to say? Well, that actually is increasingly becoming the case, isn't it? Um, Human nature, yeah. I mean, there, there's a sense in which whenever anything is wrong or out of place or isn't working the way that we see the world is working, we, we want to fix it. But, but actually, the, the truth be told, most times we don't want to fix it. We want someone to fix it, preferably someone else. And so we complain. You know, we go to somebody in charge, or we complain to the other person. You know, how many times do we see in families where a spouse, you know, how many times have you complained to your spouse about something you've been trying to get them to do, but they haven't gotten done yet? <laughs> like at 8 o'clock, Steve Zacharias said, no, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> Did he lie? <laughs> he told me you taught him. <laughs> But we don't, we complain because something's not happening. And so if somebody's not doing something, why are we complaining to them? Because we want them to do it. And the funny part about it is, is that if you think about it, it really doesn't work very well. 
you know, if, if, if it worked well, how, why, how many times would you have to complain? Once, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we're perfectionists, so if it doesn't work the first time, try it again. <laughs> and over and over and over again. Eventually it might get through, huh? And we complain. And the weird part about it, does it make us feel better to complain? Not really. I mean, if nothing else, we're mad because we had to complain. You know, we shouldn't have to do that. And the complaining actually has the opposite effect. The more we complain to someone about something, do you know what happens? What happens to you? The more irritable you become, the more upset you become about it, and the more likely you are to complain. It's a vicious cycle. And it all comes down to this thing that there's something that is out of our control. And, and we don't think that's right. That's why people drive with horns in Ohio. Because they don't like the way you're driving. So they're going to lay on their horn because that will improve your driving. That's smart, right? <laughs> Go figure. How do they, they come up with that one? But they seem to believe that. You know, if you lay on a horn, it will work better. Now, in the South, laying on your horn means very different things. It means you want to fight. So if you're in the South, don't lay on your horn. <laughs> Unless you want to fight, in which case they'll be happy to oblige you. And uh, if, if you're bigger than they are, they'll just get the shotgun off the back rack and the truck and help you with that. That's right. That's polite. Yeah, you'll be... You just let him know. Although I had a person get mad at me yesterday for doing that. Although he was crossing over, he was weaving. I mean, he wasn't, he was on the phone. And so he was not paying attention. So he was kind of drifting over to my lanes. So I just went beep. I was here. But I just want to let him know, you know, you're coming into the lane. I wasn't trying to do anything. Probably so. Um, But, you know, it's something that people aren't happy with. But a slight tap isn't a complaint. That's a signal. To let people know. It's when that's a complaint. And we complain all the time. And somehow or other, you would think that with all the horn blowing that has been going on in New York City for how many years now? Decades. That they would have perfect drivers by now, wouldn't they? And they would have very laid back people because the complaints would have done them so much good. <laughs> Some of them have. So it didn't work for the other people. I'm going to try it anyway. I don't know. They learn how to do that. And so we complain, and yet it makes us more and more miserable because we have to complain all the time. Do you feel good about yourself when you're complaining? No. And on the other hand, does it help the other person any? Do you think they feel better about do you, are, are, I mean, are you all really excited in the morning to get up and have somebody bring a complaint? I can't wait to find out what kind of complaints I get today. You never know. I mean, all sorts of complaints are going to come through my door. It's going to be so exciting. If you're a mom, you don't even have to go anywhere. <laughs> Try staying in bed. See how long you can get away with not having a complaint. Mom! You know, we complain. It's chronic. And all that complaining does is tear people down, both the giver and the receiver. And it makes us less 
than the image that God created us to be. You know, we've gotten so good about it that now when people complain to us, we oftentimes go off and complain about the complainer, complaining. And it happens all the time. And we can't even tell the difference sometimes anymore. Sometimes when people have complained about something and then they come back and say they're sorry, we say, well, I accept your apology, but has it ever occurred to you that nobody wants an apology in their butt? I mean, it just doesn't work that way. There's no such thing as I apologize, I forgive you, but. I mean, if you forgive somebody, you forgive them. You don't then go on to point out how they were wrong. Because that's doing what? Complaining. And do you know what it will increase in the other person? Complaining. I mean, then they'll gripe about you because you wouldn't even be big enough to accept their apology. And it never ends. And we see it constantly. We see it in our schools. We see it in our homes. We see it in our workplaces. We see it with friends and gossip sessions. We see it even in church. I know you're shocked. Things like that don't go on in church, right? People in church are perfect people. They're also nice. And they're also friendly. And they're also wonderful. I mean, to me, church is sort of the... Um, icon, if you will, of a dating relationship. You don't ever see any of the ugly parts of somebody because they're going to show you. You know, we, we dress them up and make it look good. It's only after you get married that you find out they're really gross habits. Or it's like trying to get a job, you know. How many people go to a job and say, say, well, you know, we start at eight. Is that a problem for you? Well, I don't know, sometimes I'm not always on time, but I'm usually there within 15 or 20 minutes of that. I mean, how many people do a job interview that way? Even if it's true. You know, we aren't honest. And yet what we want from people running for office, for instance, is for them to tell us the truth. But we don't do it. Why would they? And oftentimes for 2,000 years, the church can become as bad as the society around it. That's why James says, keep yourself unstained by the world. It's easy to get stained by the world. And it gets very easy. You remember the story of the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve are in there. And God, you know, creates them, you know, for each other, gives them dominion over everything, says you can have anything to eat off any of these plants around here, just go help yourself. And he goes, oh, but there is one one thing. There's a tree in the middle there. It's, it's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that because you'll die. Oh, okay. And then Satan comes along and says, he told you you'd die. You're not going to die. It's fruit for crying out loud. Go ahead, try it. He just doesn't want you to be like him because he knows what's good and what's bad. And so Eve tries it. And then Adam comes along and she says, he says, what are you doing? Well, he has fruit, you know, and he says, that's the fruit of, of good and evil, isn't it? And she goes, yeah, it's really good. And see, I'm not dead. And he looks and goes, well, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're not dead. Maybe God doesn't tell us the truth. But she says, here, have a bite. She says, sure, I'll try it. And then he eats off of it and, and they become wise. They now know the difference between good and evil. Has it ever occurred to you that if you ate of the fruit of, of good and evil, 
where you can know the difference that it might occur to you that you had done something that you should not have done? Like maybe we shouldn't have eaten that? But that isn't what happens in the story. What do they realize when, when they get this brilliant knowledge? Got no clothes on. And so what do they do? They, who are they hiding from? God, that makes sense, right? And so when God finds them, like it took a long time, sort of like finding your two-year-old who has their hands over their eyes and says, you can't see me, you know? <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, when God finds them, what are you doing? <laughs> well, we're hiding. Well, why? Well, we're naked. I always picture God being like Gomer Pyle. Shazam! <laughs> you are? I'm shocked. Who told you you were naked? Well, nobody. The, the, the serpent gave us its fruit. And so in their brilliance, they, they realize that they're naked. And then in a great instance of complaining, because people think women complain more than men, what happens in Scripture? When he says, why did you do this thing? And Adam says, well, it was a woman. But he doesn't just say it was the woman. He says, it was the woman that you gave me. So if you trace this back, really, God, see, it's your fault. It's not mine. Because if you didn't give me her, then I, she wouldn't have tempted me with it, and then I wouldn't have eaten it. I mean, it just created this whole cascade of cause and effect. But you see God going, oh, God. And along with knowledge of good and evil should have come intelligence. Because these people can't think straight. And, and we have been doing it ever since. And yet James tells the church, he tells us, that anyone who does not know how to bridle their tongue, that their faith is useless. Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but not with their actions. You do that? And, and even more so, not so that you feel bad, but have you ever thought about the consequences of what happens if your faith is useless? Because the truth is, is that, that if, if, if all I do is give lip service to what I believe, if it doesn't change me, then I'm really no different than the rest of the world. I'm exactly the same. Anybody know what a bridle is? Put it on a horse. Why do you put it on the horse? So you can control the horse. Tell the horse which way to go. Make sure it goes the right way. Do you know that those things don't necessarily do any good? I've only ever been on a, a real horse. I mean, a big horse. You know, not a tame horse. But once that was a that was a very old farm horse. I might add. And I, and I was out on a farm, and I said, "Oh, you got a horse?" They said, "Oh, yeah." I said, "Does anybody ever ride the horse?" And they said, "Sure, all the time." I said, "Could I ride the horse?" They said, "Yeah." Yeah, I went and I'll get a saddle. So I got the saddle on the horse, and, and they showed me how to get up on the horse. And I'm thinking, this is really cool. You know, I'm going to ride this horse. And so they say, you know, you just make a noise and kind of hit the reins a little bit, and the horse will go. So I did, and the horse started going. And, and then um, we were walking along, and we got a, a little ways down. And the horse suddenly realized I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And so the horse go, says, I'm going back to the barn. This guy's an idiot. <laughs> So the horse starts turning around to go back, and I'm pulling on these reins, and the horse is, yeah, right. 
Now, what was the difference between, anybody here ride horses? What's the difference between what I was doing and what you do? Yep. The horse believes the people who are in control who are in control inside. They don't believe the people who are just jerking on the reins. I mean, the horse knew instinctively that I didn't have a clue. So guess where I ended up? In the barn. So the person comes out from the house and says, That was a pretty quick ride. But yeah, no, the horse was done. <laughs> they said the horse was done. And I said, Yeah, he didn't want to go anymore. I said, it's like you ran out of gas or something. I don't know. I mean, I, and I don't know what I'd always thought. I always sort of thought when you sat on a horse, you know, it was kind of like driving a car. You pull this way, the horse goes that way. You pull this way, the horse goes that way. Roy Rogers made it look like that. But that doesn't happen. Part of it is that the purpose of the bridle is to provide direction. But the truth is, is that if you don't have direction, that you're giving, if you aren't really leading, then it's useless. Well, our tongues are like that too. If we receive the Word of God, and we receive God's forgiveness, and we go back out into the world, and then we just start complaining again, just like everybody else, then our faith is useless. It isn't doing us any good, because it isn't changing us who we are. Now, does that mean that you might as well quit Christianity altogether and go home. Well, no. I mean, for a bridle, can you put a bridle on a wild horse and have it work right away? Why not? You have to train The horse doesn't believe it. You have to train them that it's real, that this is true, this is going to happen, and we're in charge, and you know, once you get used to it, you'll be a lot happier. works with your tongue, too. You have to train it. And the world is desperate for a place of non-complaint, for people who build up instead of tear down. Because the truth is that's all that complaining does is it tears down. It does nothing to solve the problem. All that it serves to do is to make people feel bad. And when people feel bad, they act worse than they did before. Because chances are the chances why they're acting badly or complaining is because they already feel bad. And so if we can add more to it, it won't fix the problem. You know, this past week, when school opened in Baltimore, the first day of school, a kid went into the schoolroom on the first day and shot another kid. First day of school. Anybody see that in the news? A 17-year-old shot a 15-year-old. And do you know why? This is what's amazing. He disrespected him. Oh, well, that makes perfect sense, right? You know, because in his world, that wasn't right. And if the society that we live in becomes a society of chronic complaining, and even the good people do the same thing, maybe just not as violently, then we just continue to contribute to this, you know, heap of despair and hopelessness that we see in our world. So where does it change? How do we change it at all? Well, it changes with us. It changes when we stop complaining and when we hear ourselves complaining 
we bridle our tongue and we point it in a new direction. How many of you all would be really disappointed if you came to church and nobody had anything to complain about? Nobody? How many of you would be disappointed if you got up tomorrow morning and nobody 